there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Hope all of you had a wonderful, joyful holiday with your families last week. To celebrate the start of a new year this week, we've got something extra special in store for you. To help turbocharge your job searches or career changes in 2020, we've pulled clips from a whole bunch of super inspirational Time for Coffee guests. And even if you're not planning to be in the job market anytime soon, as you'll hear, these wise souls have so much to share around important topics like the future of work, the power of listening to your inner voice and blocking out the noise. The fact there is no such thing as the perfect job, how to recharge your internal energy pack, and finally, how to attract what you want in the coming year and beyond. So grab your mug and take a chug, because it's time for a special New Year's caffeinated career conversation. And my guests include Zach Willette, Vivek Wadwa, April Rennie, Alex Grodnick, Caroline Muja, Ulrich Nurlo, and Dove Barrett. Make sure to check out show notes for this episode to get links to all of their T4C episodes. Happy, happy new year, everyone. I hope 2020 brings you everything you want and more. So two final time for coffee questions, Zach. I try to ask all of my guests about a time in their professional life when they struggled. Some of us, like me, I was fired twice in my 40s. They turned out to be unbelievable gifts. And most important in your story is how you came through the other side and maybe a lesson you learned in the process. And I apologize, I'm right next to a construction site. So they just picked up the hammer again. So I apologize to our listeners. <laughs> no worries. I mean, construction is a good metaphor too, right? <laughs> it is. It's noisy, it's messy, but we like the results. You know? Yeah, I love this question because I think too often we see people who have titles like president or titles like founder or titles like whatever the impressive title you might have. And we think, well, they've never been vulnerable. And this question is so good because you, you make us go to our vulnerable places and, and talk about it. And the truth is, you know, I've had the privilege of working on four different continents and I've had really rough patches in each place. And actually, frankly, in each job. And I knew you were going to ask this question. Thanks for giving me a heads up <laughs> by email. So I prepared and I actually, I was like, I can tell how many stories do you want, Andrew. I can tell you lots of stories. But the one I settled on was actually the job I had just before I launched Allay. And there's a really particular reason I think this is helpful for your listeners, perhaps. I hope it's helpful for them to hear it. And this is the reason. It was a great job. And I had the perfect CV, had the perfect resume for the person to have that job. I got lots of very kind feedback. Um, and I'm a teacher, so I don't trust feedback unless it's very specific. You know, like if someone's just like, oh, you're great. I'm like, mm, it doesn't matter. But when they're like, when you did this thing and this consequence happened because of it, that was really strong. I'm like, okay, that, that's feedback you can't brush away, right? That's when I was teaching. I would always use specific feedback like that for my students. But despite all these things, 
I knew that job wasn't a fit. It, it, to go back to Reverend Howard Thurman saying, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is people who have come alive. This job was a great job, but it didn't, it didn't make me come alive. Even though I tried to convince myself it was, right? Like my head was very busy being like, oh, here's all the silver linings of this job or here's all the ways you should stick with it for a little bit longer. My heart and my gut knew that it wasn't a fit. I wasn't doing damage to other people or myself, but it wasn't for my fullest flourishing. And so it was a big risk to give it up. I didn't know for sure that this LA thing was going to work out. But I got to tell you that as soon as I knew it was the right thing to do, as soon as I really tuned in to my gut and to my heart and really to my body, not just my, not just my very loud and very quick mind, as soon as I knew it was the right thing to do, then I had to do it. And I'm, I'm super grateful that I had the support of friends and family and colleagues and a boss and, and a healthcare organization that supported me to do it. You know, courage is what we call it when the fear is real. And so is the decision to do the right thing. And I think all of us are called to make courageous decisions. It doesn't mean we don't feel the fear. Fear can be useful data, actually. One of my mentors taught me that fear is actually a pretty good teacher, but it's a terrible guide. So we should let fear teach us what it will, but we shouldn't let it guide us. And I don't know. I, I, the last thing I'll say about this is like it was a really rough patch because it was months long. and I just felt worse and worse. I wasn't sleeping well. My friends and family noticed that I wasn't myself. Really, I felt like it wasn't a good enough answer to be like, I'm not a fit for my job. That seems like a pretty obnoxious thing to say when everyone knew that it was a great job to have. I, I did a workshop on this as well with a colleague of mine um, who left an amazing job with the White House. And people were like, why would you leave that job? And she and I both wanted people to know that you have permission to be awesome in ways other than you were told you were going to be awesome. That's the lesson that I took from this particular rough patch. I hope other people get to benefit from that as well. I hope they hear that, that yes, you can get great feedback and you can believe that you're doing good work. But if it's not ultimately a fit, you have permission to be awesome in a different way, in a different place. And you'll be glad of it. Vivek, could you talk about the research that was done 10 years ago with the teams at Duke and Harvard that surveyed over 600 U.S. foreign CEOs and talk about what they discovered in terms of the ingredients necessary to be a successful entrepreneur? Yeah, that was my team. I had a team, um, you know, both at Duke and Harvard that was working on it. We What we did was that we uh, interviewed, uh, you know, uh, more than 600 executives of what were called successful companies, companies with more than a billion dollars of revenue, and try to learn a lot about them. I mean, not only uh, uh, where did they go to school, but what made them succeed and so on and so on. We were really astonished at the results because my assumption was that in the tech world, you had to be an engineer or a mathematician to succeed. What we found was that the majority of them weren't engineers and scientists. They, they, they only like 2% were, were actually mathematicians. They had a diverse set of backgrounds, everything from finance, accounting, uh, the arts. Uh, I mean, you name it, every field imaginable, English majors. I mean, uh, some of the most successful uh, uh, entrepreneurs, you know, Susan Wojcicki, uh, the, uh, the uh, CEO of YouTube, is uh, as an English major. Jack Ma in China, the founder of Alibaba, has an English major. Uh, Bracken Darrell, the CEO of Logitech, has an English major. 
we were surprised at the diverse backgrounds they had. So this myth about uh, you know tech entrepreneurs being college dropouts from Stanford who are studying studying engineering is simply that it's a myth. First of all, they're not dropouts. They tend to be highly educated. You need to have a bachelor's degree. Masters and PhDs are optional, but a bachelor's degree is a big difference. Makes a big difference in success. And it doesn't matter what the field of the degree is. It can be in any field, and you can learn all you need to do to build a successful technology company. I want to ask you. This is from a piece, a blog post you wrote earlier this year, in which you talked about a person's career as being more like a portfolio. You, I think, coined the expression a portfolioist career, and you said that it's kind of like a bento box, the career of the future looking more like the Japanese meal that you get in a restaurant than a path. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. So delighted to. So again, and it it relates to these broader macro shifts. You know, when you, a generation ago, you would get a job, you would work at a company, you would climb up a corporate ladder, you would stay there typically for quite a while, but you you had a track and it was pretty linear and you were going to work your way up or you work your way forward, but you would enter one profession and that's what you were likely going to do for a while. And that way of looking at the workplace, but that way also of looking at talent is really shifting where we now look at, and and part of this relates to the pace of change and largely of technology. But when you think about jobs that people are doing today or roles that they have versus roles that were needed 20 years or 40 or 50 years ago, some things are the same. You know, we always have teachers. We have things like plumbers. We have accountants, that sort of thing. But take the example of a data scientist. Now, data science as a field didn't even exist 10 years ago. Didn't exist. There were no position descriptions. Data science wasn't something you'd go study. Today, data scientist is one of the most popular, fast-growing careers out there. So I share that because there's part of what we're talking about, which is the future of the workplace. Part of this is about the future of education. Part of this is also about the pace of change and to be a qualified worker or professional who can add value to companies, organizations, who can add value to the world. You have to stay up to date with what you know and what you do and all of that. And that leads us directly into this kind of portfolioist bento box kind of career approach, which is, well, one of my mentors and a colleague of mine, Robin Chase, she founded the company Zipcar, if you're familiar with that company. And she is a serial entrepreneur who happens to also be a grandmother. So she's been at this for a while. And the way she likes to say it is, my father had one job. I, Robin, will have six jobs. And my kids will have six gigs or roles at any given time. And that's just how the world of work is shifting. But when you think about having those six things at any one time, that's very much like like a portfolio, like a bento box. What it requires is a rethinking of skills development and upskilling and reskilling and staying current because the pace of change means that a lot of things we know today are not actually going to be that useful to know five years from now. There are a lot of things around emotional intelligence and soft skills and relationship skills and those sorts of things that will serve you over a lifetime. But technically, functionally, the skills that we have may or may not be still in demand five years from now. And so 
all of this looking at a portfolio in which over time you build a range of skill sets that you can combine and mix and match depending on the client, depending upon the day, depending upon the need that you see, but that you can pull out over time. And part of this though, around this looking at it as a portfolio, being much more deliberate about a career that you as an individual curate and have greater control of rather than simply, you know, in the past, you get a job. Here's what the job description says. This is what you're going to do, whether you want to or not, whether you like to or not. You have to buy into the whole thing. That's less and less the case. So there's a real element of individual personal agency and being able to go out there and build something and do stuff that you love to do. It does require taking more responsibility for your own career, how it plays out, but much more, not just meaning and purpose, but also I look at something like a portfolio and like each day can be a little bit different if you craft it well. So Alex, two final questions. Could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? In my case, I was fired twice when I was in my 40s. Those are just two examples of difficult experiences that actually turned out to be incredibly wonderful opportunities. But what was it? And what was the lesson that you took out of that experience? This gets back to, you know, how careers are long and we all have our own path. And as I was working in these investment banking jobs, and it started to hit me that I didn't really like this job, which was a hard thing to do because I'd worked my whole life to get there. I was making lots and lots of money. I mean, these jobs pay you six figures your first year out of college. So society is saying that everything is going right. Why would I want to leave this? But internally, I wasn't fulfilled and I had no idea why. I'm sitting there with 10 peers. We're all analysts. We're all smart, hardworking, and they were all liking the job to an extent. So I was like, well, what's, what's wrong with me? Am I not as smart as them? And are they harder working than I am? So I looked at it as a personal deficit. And it really took a couple of years of searching and going to graduate school to really find the answer to this question is like, no, there's nothing wrong with me. It's this job didn't align what my passions are and who I am internally. You know, I'm a very, like I said, I'm an entrepreneurial person and in this very regimented job as I was getting told what to do all day long. And I would have creative ways of doing things. And no one liked when I had my creative ideas and, and no one valued those things. And that's fine. It just maybe it means that that job wasn't quite right for me. So it was really hard because I left and it's like, well, I have no clue what I'm going to be doing in my life. I'm leaving this job that society says is so valuable and I'm being paid all this money. And my parents and friends are like, what are you doing? Why are you leaving? And I didn't have a good reason to tell them. It's not like, oh, I've got some better opportunity. I'm going to go do X, Y, Z. I had no clue. I just knew that that wasn't my path. And I had to go find out what was my path. Took some time and soul searching and figuring it out. But it happened. And now I'm on this path where I have these startups and I'm waking up fulfilled every single day. And I'm feeling like my authentic self, but it's not easy. It's not like I'm making all the money that, that I was making earlier. I mean, I, I definitely think the money's going to come. So there's no right path. The only right thing to do is just to not compare yourself to everybody else and say, oh, well, they're making so much money or they're doing X, Y, and Z, or they have this kind of career, or they're going to law school. Whatever's right for someone else doesn't necessarily mean it's right for you. So it's that exercise of figuring out who you are, those moments of your life where you are most fulfilled, your authentic self, really finding those times. And then once you find those times, you're able to start to whittle away what is right, what is not right. And there is no perfect job, right? Like I could be doing lots of different things, but 
you're trying to align your interests, your passions today. I mean, these things evolve and are dynamic. But you're trying to find out where you are in your life today and how you can align the time, the work you're doing to make a living with your passions. I try to ask all time for coffee guests the following two questions. The first one is, if you could share a time for us, Caroline, in your professional life when you struggled, recognizing that you've only been sort of post-college work life since October of 2018, but nonetheless, you've had internships and other experiences in the quote unquote real world. Most importantly, how you persevered during that struggle and maybe a lesson that you took away from it. Yeah. There's so many, I feel like, challenges that I faced in this job process and being in two full-time positions. One of the most challenging times was probably actually before I got my first job. When I was in the job search initially, I was so all over the place with applying for jobs and my informational interviews and was getting those rejections and getting those like kind of glimpses of hope that I would land the job. It was a time where I needed to dig deep and really focus on my worth and knowing that it would pan out, kind of just having this bigger picture that things would fall into place because I was getting so down sometimes about the rejections or oh, that was the perfect job and that one would have been perfect. And if I only had that job, that would have made me happy and fulfilled. And I think you can get into such a rut about like the perfect job and the perfect scenario. Definitely found myself in that sometimes. It led to comparing myself to my friends and other people in my life. I think what brought me out of it was staying close to my values and the things that I wanted out of life. And I knew that I wanted to be in a mission-driven company, as I've mentioned. I knew I wanted a work-life balance. I didn't want to settle. And I think at times it was easy to want to settle and want to just sort of maybe throw up my hands and take a break or take whatever was offered. But having that inner compass that was really strong throughout that process. And even the second time around when I was job searching after Mind Body Green, having an inner compass and an intuition that's guiding you to the right thing. And whether that's being in nature or meditating or finding time to connect to who you are and how that relates to what you're looking for was really helpful for me because it's so easy to get lost in the job boards and the what you think you should be doing and what other people think you should be doing. During those times of transition where I was in between jobs or looking, it was really helpful for me to continue to come back to what do I value? What's important to me? What do I want my life to look like, my day-to-day? And is this opportunity potentially going to be that or at least lead me there. Wow. (laughs) I am just blown away by the wisdom that you have at such a young age. I am truly kind of gobsmacked. (laughs) 
Thank it's you. really incredible and clearly a testament to your parents and the young woman that you are because honestly, I know people twice your age who still don't have that ability to bring that perspective into their life, Caroline. And I'm curious, what is your feeling now that you've had two jobs post-college about the idea of a perfect job? Do you think it exists? I do not think it exists because the perfect job is sort of this light at the end of the tunnel that I think people pursue. And I know I was sort of pursuing that at a time period. But I think that it's this idea that if you have the right job, that everything else will fall into place. Being in post-grad life, you realize that there is no perfect scenario. There is no perfect job because every day is different. There's different challenges that you face personally, financially, emotionally, professionally. And I think it all blends into the larger picture. So even if you have what you think is the perfect job, I think that there's going to be other aspects of your life that challenge you. If you think you have a perfect job, it may end up disappointing you if it doesn't end up panning out or months down the line, it's not what you thought. For me, I kind of think about it as maybe there are times where things feel perfect or they feel this is going really well or this part of my job is flourishing and just enjoying those times that are really going well and then having perspective when things are challenging and knowing, okay, weeks ago, this was going well. So I think it's about shifting your perspective. I do think perfect job is a little bit of a dangerous path to go down because you'll end up disappointed if you think that there's a perfect job because there's so many aspects to a job. A company is a living thing in itself. It's changing and a lot's out of your control. So waiting for something to be perfect isn't really realistic. So Ulrich, as you know, most of the Java junkies listening today are between the ages of 18 and 25. Mm. Some of them are still in school. Some have graduated. They're at the beginning of their lives. One of the things that I love so much in the book is that you talk about energy. Yeah. And how we use the energy that we have. Can you, yeah. can you start explaining to us how we do that? I sure can. So I like to answer your question by starting somewhere else. I mean, I, I, I'm experiencing a lot of people in, in all ages coming in and saying to me, hey, I'm tired of my job. I want to change it. Can you help me out figuring out what I should do? And of course I can, but that's never actually the, the specific answer that they're searching, searching for. I mean, they want to ask a different question, which is basically what makes me happy. And very few people actually has this knowledge about what makes me happy. And that goes directly into the unknown part, the unconscious part about what is energy, what is giving me energy and what is draining my energy. And for us people, I believe that there's two kinds of energy. There's a physiological one. And this, these are life energy. And the life energy is like a power bank, which means that when, when our physiological energy is gone, we switch automatically into our life energy, which is the power bank. Now, energy consumption is like, if I would say to you, hey, anyway, I'm going to give you $100 and that's what you have to live for. 
every week. Then, I mean, in that case, you will start to think very carefully how you should spend that kind of money. And what we people have to become aware of is that energy is exactly the same thing. Because if we do not become aware of how we invest our energy, we don't know how much we're actually spending or using of our life energy every day, which means that you can, for instance, if, if you spend like uh, 50 energy points in, in during the morning, but right before lunch, you do something different that gives you 50% or 50 energy points again, that makes you to go back to equal. When we're not aware of this, I mean, we just spend and waste our energy in ways that we shouldn't. And, and energy is, is, is to me what makes results. I mean, you don't have any gasoline in your car, you will not go from A to B. If you don't get your sleep for, I think it's like six days, you will die. So energy is what is needed to create movement from A to B. Now, the physiological energy is something that under normal circumstances, we can recharge as people during our sleep or during our rest. Whereas the life energy is completely different. It can take a week, it can take a month, it can take a whole lifetime for some people if they just waste it and really, really put it down to the minimum. That's often where the people that, that they get stressed and they come completely collapse and they are never able to go back to a normal life. In my perspective, that's because they, they used up their life energy. But energies as well, I mean, in processes, it's in companies, no energy, no results in companies. And again, companies are not aware. But when we make this awareness, when we put our focus into positive energy, we get positive results. Why? Because energy is a magnetism, which means that if you spend a lot of time with negative people, at a certain point, you will get negative. If you spend time with positive people, you get positive. And and that's just how it is. I mean, it's, it's simple math. But again, if we're not aware, if we don't make decisions that is contributing to positive energy, we'll most likely end up in a situation where we, we do things unconsciously, make decisions unconsciously that is not contributing positive. So how can we identify when we're with somebody and we're getting drained versus we're with somebody who's filling up the energy tank. I mean, for most of us, we've experienced these people where either, I mean, if you're young, it's, it might be a teacher, it might be one of your um, students that you're uh, going to school with, a university. Uh, it might be someone at work. It might be just someone at, at your in your family. I think everybody's trying to, to meet these people where immediately you see this person coming towards you thinking, oh no, not me. Do not pick me. And then suddenly the person comes and says, hi, can I ask you a question? And then immediately it's just like, you feel that you every Everything is being sucked out of you. And, and, and in worst cases, you need to spend the whole day of regaining the energy. I don't think there's anyone that's waking up in the morning thinking, hey, I'm going to drain everybody around me. So why do they do it? They don't know they do it. It might sound scary, but it, it might actually not be. In my experience, actually, it's a great moment where we actually pay attention, show an interest and, and tell people that we care by going to someone saying, hey, I'm experiencing that you're pretty low on energy. Are you okay? And is there anything I can do to change that? And then as well, make the person aware of that he or she might be draining everybody else around them. And based on my experience, I, I actually see that people change their energy and they start to blossom again because they've been made aware. And what about the positive energy? I mean, how do you know where that is? Is that just you feel happier when you're with that person or those people or doing whatever that activity is? Is it as simple as that? 
It is as simple as that. I mean, we, we, I think for most people, if we put our awareness into it, no matter if it, if you're a CEO or, or, or a ground staff, everybody can actually feel when you walk into a room, is this a positive experience or is it a negative experience? But as well, you can do positive things. I mean, we go back to the element of what makes you happy. Because when we when we do things that makes us happy, it creates energy. I don't th- say that life should be like pink and perfect because it, it will never be. We'll, there will always be things that we need to, to do that is not making us happy or it's draining our energy. But as long as we, we put our awareness into making sure that, that we fill our daily life up with the, the aspects of what makes us happy, we can actually change and work and develop our energy a lot and that goes as well when you when you make the decision on what do you want to educate yourself into i mean there's so many people that take long very very beautiful educations and then they go out to do something different because it's actually not what they wanted to do and it doesn't make them happy what has the role of serendipity been in your professional life so before I answer that, I want to I want to make sure that I understand the word serendipity in the way that you do. So tell me what you mean by it. Chance. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a uh, quick example. I graduated sure. from college. I was supposed mm-hmm. to go to Nepal mm-hmm. with the Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. And a few weeks before I was supposed to leave, some guy who was painting my parents' home said, oh, Andrea's going to Nepal in September. Does she know about the rapes that have happened there of the Peace Corps volunteers? Well, this was back in the day before the World Wide Web, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. before cell phones. I called the Peace Corps office in D.C. They confirmed it. So there I mm-hmm. was in August of 1985, Dove, and I had no idea what I was going to be doing with my life. That was Mm. one example of serendipity. Within a matter Mm. of days, a man who had worked as a translator for my father a number of years before during one of the American president's visits to China, my father's a journalist, Mm -hmm. he happened to be in the United States and he just came from New York. I live outside of Washington, D.C. And he said, oh, Andrea needs a job. Well, this woman, Virginia Kampsky, only hires young women who speak Chinese. And I happen to speak Chinese because I studied it as an undergrad. And she's looking to hire someone to go to Beijing. So that's just Mm. an example. (laughs) A couple of quick examples. Great examples. And now I'm going to blow a hole in it. If that's okay. Um, I don't believe in chance at all. I think it's absolute nonsense. What I do believe in is the quantum law of resonance. The quantum law of resonance, and by the way, go look it up. And if you want to understand the simplest way to look it up, you can just look at sympathetic resonance and you'll find music. And under music, you'll talk about sympathetic resonance. And the sympathetic resonance example is if I have a tuning fork in my hand that is a D, a note of D, and I have a tuning fork in my other hand that is the tuning fork of also the note of D, and I ding one of them, the other one will start to vibrate. If I, on the other hand, have a D in one hand and a C in the other, and I ding the D, the C will not vibrate. That's called sympathetic resonance. You are a tuning fork. You both vibrate you receive and you broadcast a frequency modulation that is part of who you are. It is your quantum resonance field. The quantum resonance field broadcasts out. It is not the law of attraction. That is a very superficial understanding of what this is. 
that's like trying to describe cheese by the wrapper is just not what it is. So it is understanding that it is what you are resonating from an unconscious level out into the world. And what you resonate is what is attracted to you. And if you're wondering why shit keeps happening to you, uh, that's because you're resonating it. Now, let me stop you because now you're about to beat yourself up and say, I'm a terrible person. No, you're not. A, it's unconscious. You have no choice in it, right? It's not a conscious process, but it's coming from your unconscious. And let me help you to clear it up. Deal with your shit. That's what it is. What resonates out and brings the crap to you is doing one of two things. It is either repeating a pattern so that you can stay the victim or it's repeating a pattern so that you can overcome and deal with and become more in tune and aligned with your purpose. That's it. The crap that shows up is not there because there's a God punishing you, there's some accountant in the sky called karma. That's not how it works. Karma. It comes from the Vedantic word, and all it means is action. Go look up the research, the word. That's all it means. Action. Karma is action. It's the action you take. So resonance comes from whatever is in your unconscious mind. Thought plus emotion equals feeling. Thought plus emotion and feeling creates resonance. That's what's happening. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.